This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. African Roads to Anarchy Anarchic Elements in Everyday Peasant Life To examine future possibilities for liberty in peasant life, let's, as an example, look to the continent most often written off. These days, quote, Africa has an image problem, end quote. War, famine, disease, and charity appeals. As time goes on, this skewed view of a diverse continent will be further exaggerated by worsening climate change and the interventions of disaster capitalism. In the previous sections, we saw that climate change will cause and exacerbate civil wars, largely through increasing the scarcity of food, water, and cultivatable soil. Many envision these future conflicts as a generalization of the image they hold of present-day Africa. In doing so, they are mostly mistaken. Most of Africa's wars today are fueled more by the presence of resources and less their scarcity. Retractions in global trade should deny oxygen to some of these fires. For instance, as the oil runs out, areas such as the Niger Delta under siege by state and corporate oil interests, are likely to become once again backwaters rather than battlegrounds. I take it as a given that we will not see an African-wide conversion to Western-originated anarchism, so what societies evolve into will, in large part, be defined by what they are now. And here is some good non-news from Africa. In many places, and on many levels, its cultures have significant anarchic characteristics with a minority being functioning anarchies. I'll hand over for a moment to Sam Ba, a Nigerian anarcho-syndicalist. Quote, to a greater or lesser extent, many traditional African societies manifested an anarchic eloquence, which, upon closer examination, leads credence to the historical truism that governments have not always existed. They are but recent phenomena and are, therefore, not inevitable in human society. While some anarchic features in traditional African society existed largely in past stages of development, some of them persist and remain pronounced to this day. What this means is that the ideals underlying anarchism may not be so new in the African context. What is new is the concept of anarchism as a social movement ideology. Anarchy as abstraction may indeed be largely unknown to Africans, but it is not at all unknown as a way of life. Manifestations of anarchic elements in African communities were, and to some degree, still are pervasive. These include the partial or complete absence of hierarchical structures, state apparatuses, and the commodification of labor. To put this in positive terms, some societies were, and are, largely self-managed, egalitarian, and republican in nature. End quote. The extent to which Africa is viewed as a basket case in world opinion is in part the extent to which its societies are anarchic and not fully enclosed within capitalist relations. Why have anarchic social relations survived in Africa to such a degree? Jim Feast, writing for the American anarchist magazine Fifth Estate, has some answers. Quote, in sub-Saharan Africa, 
aside from in the minority of countries with a large white settler population and valuable resources, such as diamonds or copper. There was little penetration of capitalist agricultural forms or government into the interior. In the colonial era, the imperial powers had only limited goals. There was no desire to invest resources to ensure the state could project its authority into every corner of the new colonies. And after independence, settler states accepted, Africans remained only marginally affected by the market. They increasingly traded in the market, but their base was still a homestead and family farm where a subsistence ethos prevailed. The salient points are these. No matter how wide the impact of world capitalism, much of sub-Saharan Africa has not been effectively shaped by state or market power. Moreover, while in many parts of the planet, there is a struggle to develop an alternative economy. In the parts of Africa under discussion, a robust subsistence economy, unconcerned with profit and capital expansion, continues to exist. End quote. Peoples without governments. While anarchic elements are pervasive in Africa, there are also entire anarchist societies. Some of these exist surrounded by more incorporated populations, while others are truly remote from external power, through luck or active avoidance. Environments which are not conducive to empire are a significant factor behind the survival of some of these cultures and their ability to defend their autonomy. A number have remained anarchic within themselves whilst superficially accepting outside power. This should not necessarily be seen as assimilation. Governments don't like to let outright opposition go unpunished, lest it encourage others. Yet they don't always have the capacity to fully internalize pre-existing or maroon societies, especially wily ones. For the community, the, quote, state power and the alien political culture are so different and so powerful that direct resistance soon proves to be unaffordable. Passive accommodation is impossible as well. The most acceptable possibility is some kind of collaboration that allows things to continue almost as before, with the idea that we were here before them and we will be here after them." End quote. In some situations, this is as simple as unspoken contracts approximate to, we'll pretend you're governing us, you pretend to believe it. In other situations, outwitting the state may involve a complex set of tactics, including providing key functions, retraditionalization, regular movement, and manipulating the balance of competing external powers. Some may object that these anarchies are not those we would design if we were to sit down and plan the ideal society for them, but they are anarchies nonetheless. Though far more egalitarian than surrounding societies, they usually have some level of sex and age stratified power relations, a division of labor, and sometimes rely on animal slavery. I don't view any of these things as good, but it should be remembered that to differing extents, these are aspects of all civilized societies. At least these cultures don't have class warfare or the state. In this sense, they are anarchies, even if they don't conform to all the aspirations of our Western-originated anarchisms. They should not be idealized, any more than present-day Chiapas or 1936 Barcelona, and you don't have to support them. 
but these are existing anarchies, the active social creation of millions of people through time, resisting the concentration of power. Any overview of possibilities for liberty would be foolish to ignore them. Those of us who are freeing ourselves from authority can find insights, inspiration, and warnings from their examples. Commons resurgent as global trade retracts. For those in Africa, the fact that anarchies exist and some anarchic tendencies remain widespread beyond them leaves routes of escape and survival open, which can be utilized as authorities collapse, retract, or are destroyed. It should be noted that many commons-based societies within Africa are fallback positions turned to after complex kingdoms collapsed or were dismantled by invading empires, both Western and African. While colonial elites often police through local traditional authorities, they came to blows with them too. Dominant classes act in their own interests, not in that of an abstract system of hierarchical power. The attack on local authority by outside elites opened up possibilities for anarchy in the past, and this pattern continues. Jim Feast once again. Here's an irony of history. In the last 15 years, in some parts of the industrially undeveloped world, the state has withered away, not because of its supersession, but due to the extension of global capitalism. Talk of state collapse on capital's periphery doesn't mean governments have completely vanished, but that many states have diminished from being the totalized agencies of control we experience in northern tier countries." End quote. Since independence, most sub-Saharan African countries have been one-party states, headed by corrupt strongmen who rule by combining military coercion with the distribution of favors to well-placed followers. The intelligent strongman sees that not only his immediate cronies, who staff the state, but regional and tribal leaders of every significant stripe must be cultivated by financing infrastructural projects that offer prime opportunities for graft in their bailiwicks. But with structural adjustment policies forced upon these nations, this form of government has often ceased to exist because funds to sustain the patriotic networks are no longer there. In a movement to shore up elite rule, there's been a widespread morphing into multi-party democracies. From 1988 to 1999, the number of states in sub-Saharan Africa featuring multi-party elections went from 9 to 45. This temporarily and cynically solves two problems for state rule. It restores a patina of legitimacy to a system that can no longer provide either patronage or welfare services to its citizens, and reinvigorates it by dividing clients among the competing parties so each political grouping has need to siphon fewer funds since it serves a smaller client base. Another loss of state power is the inability of it to provide minimal welfare to the citizenry, such as education and medical care, which structural adjustment programs eliminate as too costly. While some of these services are taken over by international relief organizations, most that are continued are done so by groups from the distressed society itself, in other words, as Thompson puts it, quote, declining state capacity required civil society to increase its self-sufficiency, end quote. The once repressed women's groups, trade unions, farmer associations, and other grassroots networks are assuming greater responsibility in social and economic life. 
So maybe here we are seeing an African road to anarchism, whereby the money economy and the state, which are in a condition of partial collapse or withdrawal, cede more and more functions to non-monetarized, non-statist village communities that are organized on the basis of mutual aid. This is already happening in some areas in a non-newsworthy manner without overt conflict. In others, this revitalization of the commons is one of the forces filling the power vacuum left by the warring fragmentation of failed states. The structural adjustment mentioned is, of course, time-specific. There is an ebb and flow of projects of power as the expansion of China into Africa shows, but nevertheless, the process observed is a pointer to what may happen in many places as global trade retracts in a resource-poor, climate-changed world. Outwitting the state. As well as those we could mischievously label lifestyle anarchists, Africa has a growing, though still small, number of groups organizing under the banner of anarchism. These are unlikely to change the faces of the entire continent, but may play significant roles in emergent movements and struggles. To repeat the earlier quote from Seaweed, quote, any bioregion can be liberated through a succession of events and strategies based on the conditions unique to it, end quote. Even if we accept the foreclosure of any possibility of global anarchist revolution, there is no reason to say a regional anarchist insurrection somewhere in Africa or elsewhere is not on the cards, and this is made more likely by the factors we have discussed already. In probably overly optimistic terms, Sam Ba states, quote, the process of anarchist transformation in Africa might prove comparatively easy, given that Africa lacks a strong capitalist foundation, well-developed class formations, and relations of production in a stable, entrenched state system, end quote. While a surprising number of African dirt roads lead to anarchy, much of what we have touched on here relates to many rural areas across the planet to differing degrees. For instance, in his excellent The Art of Not Being Governed, James C. Scott recounts numerous examples of lived anarchies in upland Southeast Asia. Even outside of anarchies, peasant communities whose self-sufficiency has not been entirely vanquished still often retain high levels of autonomy. Land is liberty. Sadly, in many places, communal traditions have been eradicated, the commons, or wilderness, enclosed, and farmers forcefully transformed into wage laborers. In others, however, they have not, for a diverse set of reasons, not least of which is resistance. States do not always get their own way. The tide of Western authority will recede from much, though by no means all, of the planet. A writhing mess of social flotsam and jetsam will be left in its wake. Some patches of lived anarchy, some horrible conflicts, some empires, some freedoms, and of course, unimaginable weirdness. As states recede and fail through entropy, stupidity, revolution, internal conflict, climate stress, people will continue to dig, sow, herd, and live, most, admittedly, in vastly more challenging climates, and few with the guarantee of a peaceful life. In many places, commodified land will be reclaimed as commons, and new communities will be formed by refugees from the collapsed economies. 
anarchic societies, old and new, will need to defend their liberty and lives through avoidance, arms, flight, and outwitting the state. We have glimpsed some of the possibilities opened up and closed by both future climate wars and the retraction of state governance from rural communities. But what about liberty at the shifting outer borders of civilization? And what of liberty beyond those borders in the wild? This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.